The 2014 movie Unbroken is the story of Louis Zamperini, a former U.S. Olympic athlete who has a pilot of a B-25, B-24 bomber in World War II, was on a search and rescue mission over the Pacific Ocean. He was forced to crash land his plane due to mechanical failure. Eight of his fellow crew members died in the crash. Three survived. Zamperini was adrift in the ocean for 47 days before landing on the Japanese-occupied Marshall Islands, where he was immediately captured. For the next two years, his Japanese captors, aware of his past as an Olympic athlete and thus an American hero, singled him out for severe beatings, torture, food deprivation, and solitary confinement as a prisoner of war. The author of the book upon which the movie Unbroken was based, Laura Hillenbrand, wrote the following about Zamperini's thoughts as he reflected on his experience and his faith in Christ after returning home from the POW camps. Quote, What resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that his Japanese prison camp commander had striven to make of him. In a single, silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. In one sense, most of us have a hard time relating to that kind of extraordinary physical hardship. The emotional loneliness, the abandonment that goes along with it. I know I do. But in another sense, we can all relate to emotional and spiritual isolation. Whether suffering from intense physical illness, if even for a few hours only or perhaps being involved in fractured and broken personal relationships that are emotionally wrenching and difficult for years and years on end. These kind of physical, mental, and emotional trials often lead to spiritual struggles as well. Wrestling with the will of God, even the fairness of God or the presence of God in the midst of trials, is the experience of even the most mature believer in Christ at times. We, we sometimes forget that God is there, that He is in the midst of every circumstance. In the autobiography of the great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon, he wrote, I believe it is a shallow experience that makes people always confident of what they are and where they are. For there are times of terrible trouble that make even the most confident child of God hardly know whether he is on his head or on his heels. The book of Job is an example of struggle in the midst of hardship. We often see it in the Psalms as well, particularly in the Psalms of Israel's King David. These precious sections of God's word can be of immense comfort whenever we find ourselves in dark places yet still clinging 
to the God who doesn't seem to be there with us at that moment. Perhaps the greatest of these comforting psalms is the one we will consider this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22. The header for this psalm tells us it is a psalm of David. The specific circumstances of the psalm are not known. Some speculate that David may have wrote it when King Saul was seeking to kill him in 1 Samuel 23. When Saul's army, the army of Israel, was closing in on David, encompassing him. In reality, we don't know. And it could have been written many times over the eight years when Saul was pursuing David from 1 Samuel chapter 18 to chapter 31. Out of jealousy, ever since the young man David defeated Goliath, King Saul, Israel's first king, had been pursuing David. Saul had already been rejected by God for his disobedience, for his faithlessness. And David has already been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king over Israel. As a result, Saul sees David as a rival to the throne. And his pursuit of David is relentless. But even though given at least two opportunities to take Saul's life, David refuses to do so. Instead, David runs and hides in the rugged, rugged desert hills of eastern Israel not far from the Dead Sea. This seems to be the immediate setting for this psalm. But the text of this psalm, as we will see, drives us to the realization that there is something more, something much more powerful and world-changing going on here in Psalm 22. This psalm is divided into two parts. The first part, point one, to be forsaken by God is a terrifying but necessary thing. That goes from verse 1 to verse 21. And then the second section of the psalm, point two, the forsaken Savior. The forsaken Savior brings deliverance to all nations, verses 22 to 31. Let's remember a few things as we dive into this psalm. First, the psalms are a songbook. They are the hymn book of Israel. They are Hebrew poetry. And the Hebrew language is a very picturesque language. As a language, it is very good at painting word pictures for us. Try not to make everything in a psalm walk on all fours, you might say. Pay attention to the major points. Follow the flow. See the picture it's painting. With that in mind, let's dig into the text of this psalm by looking at point one. To be forsaken by God is a terrifying but necessary thing. Look with me, Psalm 22. Follow along as I read verse 1 and 2. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Unlike my sermon introduction this morning, Psalm 22 doesn't ease you in. No, it smacks you right in the mouth with a blunt and stark accusing introduction. My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me is the question. Why have you abandoned me? Why don't you save me? Why don't you hear me? My God, I cry out by day. I cry out by night. I cry out all the time. I never rest. I never cease for praying. But you don't answer me, God. This is what it looks like when God has seemingly forsaken you, deserted you. There's an ironic contradiction going on here. Three times in these first two verses, David says, My, my, my. This is the psalmist's God. This is David's God in a very personal way. He embraces God. My, my, my. In the same way, the word you, it's used three times in these first two verses. These are pointed personal questions with explicit implications. You have forsaken me, God. You are far from me. You don't answer me. If he is my God, why doesn't he answer me? Well, what do we learn? What's the point? To be forsaken by God is to hear divine silence. To hear nothing in response to your cry. The fact our Savior Jesus Christ quotes the first words of this psalm as He is very near death on the cross tells us this psalm and the abandonment, the desertion, the forsaking of the Son of God as fully God and fully man by the Father as Jesus bears our sins upon His body is foremost in Christ's mind on that cross. It's tempting to jump right into this psalm's relevance to Christ on the cross. But at this point... I want to slow down. I want to develop a few more points before we come back to that. And we will. But given this harsh, very personal beginning to the psalm, the writer then retreats to a pattern and a structure that will repeat itself over the first 21 verses. We will see as we read through this psalm that every description of the misery of the forsaken one is followed by an expression of faith or a desperate request or sometimes both. Verses 1 and 2 and the silence of God is met by an expression of God's faithfulness in history. The misery of verses 6 and 8 and 12 to 18 are met by faithful affirmations or pleas for deliverance from the Lord in verses 9 to 11 and 19 to 21. We see that here in verses 3 to 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The forsaking God is nevertheless a holy God. 
He is the God the fathers trust in and were delivered and rescued by God. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, particularly the language of Moses and the Israelites is here in verses 3 to 5. They were rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were delivered through the Red Sea from Pharaoh's chariots. Now we see the second sequence of misery followed by faithful trust in verses 6 to 11. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Sounds like what we just read from Matthew 27, doesn't it? Here in verses 6 to 8, we see the scorn of men seeming to aggravate the silence of God. And these are from among his very own people that these words are coming. They mock and ridicule him for his faith. Verse 8 is speaking a sarcastic mocking of the forsaken one. We know that because they use the term Lord. In our English Bible, it is spelled capital L and then a little lower, a little smaller, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the way our English Bibles indicate the special covenant name God uses with his people Israel. In Hebrew, his name is pronounced Yahweh. So this forsaken one is being sarcastically reviled by his very own people, by the people of Yahweh, by the covenant people, by Israel. The point they are driving home is surely God will not bother to mess with delivering someone like you. Someone who is a worm and not a man. Yet in verses 9 to 11... This forsaken one is still reflecting on God's faithful love for him. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. And these verses, David appeals to his experience in the past. Note the contrast. Even though he describes himself as a worm in verse 6, he is evidently a special kind of worm, for the Lord is like a doctor or a midwife that delivered him at birth and then cared for him, fed him, and loved him like a mother. If the Lord so cared for him at birth, and when he was young, verse 11 indicates that this forsaken one still believes the Lord is near in his time of trouble, and knows that God is his only hope. This brings us to the third 
and the last sequence of misery and suffering, followed by a plea of deliverance for the forsaken one in verses 12 to 21. But this forsakenness now reaches its most appalling form. In the total vanquishing of this abandoned man by his enemies. This is the most extensive and detailed of the three sections. These word pictures describe what is done to him in beastly terms. In verse 11, he says trouble is near. In verses 12 to 18, we see exactly what kind of trouble. How near it is and how serious it is for him. Pay very close attention to the imagery here in verses 12 to 18 as I read. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Bulls surround him. Lions tear him up. Wild dogs encircle him. But these wild dogs are human, for they are a congregation of evildoers. The metaphors strain to get the full impact of the sinful inhumanity across to us. The ordeal is too much to endure. Bodily fluids and blood pour forth. His heart, the very center of life in the Bible, is melted away. All strength is exhausted. His hands and feet are pierced. He is laid in the dust of death. The final humiliation is his clothes are removed from his naked dead body like the spoils of war. They gloat over him. Verses 12 to 18 describe nothing less than an execution. The assault upon the forsaken one is fatal here. It seems he is totally within their power. They can do with him whatever they will. It is a sobering scene. It's one of the most devastating and terrifying sections in all the scriptures. This is the end result of being forsaken, abandoned, and deserted by God. The mystery in this passage, and by extension all of Psalm 22, is this. While the psalm is written by David... Nothing even approaching this ever really happened to David. Certainly, he did not die this way. 
1 Samuel 18 and beyond describes some very tough times, but he never faced anything so devastating or final as this. How do we reconcile this? How does this fit with the text? We do it by letting the New Testament inform our Old Testament understanding. There is the historical David, the one who wrote this psalm, the one who was the great king of Israel. And while it's true David experienced unusual suffering during his life on earth, and that David experienced suffering and isolation, that suffering and isolation David experienced is reflected, at least in part, in this psalm. But David was a man and a king in covenant with God. That is, in relationship with God. A relationship God cemented with a promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord promised to establish David's royal line. That a descendant of David would sit on the throne of Israel and his kingdom would last forever. A promise we call the Davidic Covenant. The covenant with David. The promise to David. And by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Lord revealed to David the suffering and death that his one special descendant, the one who would sit on that throne forever, the Messiah, King of Israel, would endure. The one who would come to die for the sins of his people is the one who would sit on the throne of David forever and be forsaken by his father almost 1,000 years later on a cross on a hill called Calvary outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And that descendant is called the son of David. And the Son of God. He is the Savior, Jesus Christ. The four Gospels speak only briefly of the actual crucifixion. But here in Psalm 22, the details of the psalm are laid bare for us. The details of crucifixion are laid bare for us. We get insight into what's going on when Christ was crucified. Crucifixion, by the way, that wasn't even invented as a form of capital punishment for hundreds and hundreds of years after Psalm 22 was written. A true testimony to the divine nature of God's truth and the greatness of the salvation God provides in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you are an unbeliever and you read Psalm 22 and you connect it to the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, it's impossible to avoid the reality of the connections that exist there. It is a testimony to God's faithfulness, to His plan and purpose, and to the salvation provided in Christ. Well, it's hard to read verses 12 to 18. It's sad and it's sobering to read the words that come to understand in my own heart that it is my sin 
and your sin that put Jesus there on that cross. But thankfully, the psalm does not end at verse 18. We do not end with Jesus on the cross. This devastating first section of Psalm 22 ends with the desperate longing plea of the psalmist for help, for aid, for deliverance, followed by an answer from the Lord and a rescue. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Here we have the final appeal to the Lord for deliverance. There is a building of this song to a climax in these requests. A sense of urgency is present. The song is building to a crescendo. Do not be far off. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, from the dog. Save me from the lion. Now the sword, the dog, and the lion have done their worst to him. Then we have the pivotal statement of this entire psalm in the last line of verse 21. You have rescued me. Literally, it is, you have answered me. Most of our English translations don't handle this well, very well, including the ESV. The, King, the New King James Version gets it right. What the ESV translates as rescue in verse 21, is the same Hebrew word translated answer back in verse 2. Look back at verse 2 with me. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. But now God has answered. And in answering, He has rescued the God who has forsaken His anointed one, the God who was silent, He has now answered in verse 21. Being impaled on the horns of a wild ox is about as far from deliverance as you can get. But the Lord has rescued. The Lord has answered. This is impossible deliverance from the jaws of hopeless despair. Isaac was not sacrificed ultimately by Abraham. But the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed. Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Father to crush Him. Almost makes you flinch, doesn't it? This is not a God to be trifled with. Well, doesn't this fit the pattern of the gospel events surrounding the crucifixion and death of Christ? Followed by his resurrection on the third day. Surely Satan thought he had his victory. Satan surely thought he had killed the son of Eve, the one promised long ago as the coming redeemer in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. Yet the resurrection brought victory over Satan, over death, and over sin. 
What Adam could not do, the last Adam, Christ has done. What Satan thought was his crowning glory became his doom, became his total undoing as Christ crushes the head of Satan and defeats him through his own death and resurrection all according to the plan and purpose of his Father before the foundation of the world. The Son, Jesus, glorifies His Father by dying on the cross. By rising from the dead. And now the blessings will flow from this victory, starting in verse 22. That brings us to point number two. The forsaken Savior brings salvation to all nations. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who hear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel... And what is the reason for all this praise of the Messiah who suffered? Well, there it is in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Have you ever thought of your condition as a sinner before God as so gross so unlovely, so repulsive before God that he could not stand to have any contact or relationship or hear us because of it. Our sin is that great. He is a holy God. We are sinners. The distance between us is infinite. Have you ever imagined that God might despise and abhor your sins so much that is it only because Christ was forsaken in your place as your substitute and now sits at the right hand of the Father as your advocate, that He has imputed His righteousness to you as the perfect Savior, that our afflictions are not hidden from His face, but instead He hears our cries for help. He hears our prayers. He answers us in the sufferings in the cross of Christ. The cross is His answer to our cries. In it, He comforts us, forgives us, is our refuge in the midst of the storm. That is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Look at verse 26. As a result, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The affliction of the afflicted is not despised or abhorred by the Father because of Christ. 
Because Christ has been forsaken, the Father has promised to never forsake us. Jesus said He is with us always, even to the end of the age. You can take that promise from Psalm 22 to the grave and on into eternity with you. Isn't that amazing? That is the promise of Christ for us. Now, verses 27 to 31 point to the salvation of all the families of the earth through this forsaken Savior. Jew and Gentile together will be saved by Him and serve Him. In this we hear the echoes of the promises given to Abraham clear back in Genesis 12. The promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth through his descendants. That one special descendant, that one descendant of Abraham, that Jew, is Jesus Christ. We also see here the foreshadowing of Acts chapter 1 and really the whole first half of the book of Acts and the statement of Jesus that His disciples, that His church would be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts follows that pattern. The gospel goes first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to the rest of the world, in fulfillment of what was spoken to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ was crucified. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. Jesus is the King. And He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. As Psalm 22 draws to a close, we see that all the nations shall worship before the forsaken Savior. Just as Paul wrote of Jesus in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 verse 11. Paul's making the point that God the Father highly exalted Jesus because He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2 verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our efforts to evangelize our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors should be fueled by such praise and love of Christ because He first loved us. We can love others. We can tell them the gospel story. Before we close this morning, let's read the last two verses of Psalm 22, starting in verse 20. I want you to pay particular attention to the last four words of the psalm. 
posterity, that is, future generations, shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. What are those last four words? He has done it. Remember what the Gospel of John recorded as the last words of Jesus on the cross? It is finished. He has done it, and it is finished. The last words of Psalm 22, and the last words of Christ on the cross. Remember what the Gospel of Matthew that we read just a little earlier records as the first words of Jesus on the cross? Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look again at the first verse of Psalm 22. What are those first words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus isn't quoting Psalm 22. He is fulfilling Psalm 22. It is no coincidence that both Jesus' first words and His last on the cross come from this psalm. It seems that on the cross, the mind and heart of our Lord was informed, encouraged, and comforted by this psalm. We too can be filled with the knowledge of the great salvation we have in Christ through this psalm and be comforted and encouraged by it during times of affliction, just as our Savior was. There is no greater love. There is no greater love. Let us pray. Lord God, our Father, we are humbled as we remember the great price paid by our Lord as He acted as our substitute in suffering Your wrath on our behalf. How terrible we are that the King of kings and Lord of lords was sent to die in our place. Lord Jesus, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you were slain. And with your blood purchased men for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. To you alone be glory now and forever. Amen.